Welcome back to Stack Trace, the podcast where we talk about Apple, news, rumors, technology, programming, and many other things. With me, John Sundell, and my good friend, Mr. Guy Rambo. How's it going over there in Rambo HQ 2.0, Rambo's Fort, Mr. Rambo? Doing great. Uh, still getting things up to speed, just like last week. Still a bit empty, so there might be a bit of echo in my track. But yeah, that's been my life for the past few weeks. And, and how's yours? Yeah, good over here as well. I mean, here not much, much has changed because I've been living here for a while, you know, so, you know, it's uh, steady. Uh, but I've been working on a lot of exciting things, which I want to tell you about later. But first, I want to hear what have you been up to besides your kind of moving in progress? Moving in progress. <laughs> Basically, Uh, yeah, so I've been basically just focusing on getting everything set up here. It's a lot of work, as you know, and as everyone who has moved before knows, so I am setting things up slowly. Today, I got like the initial home kit set up pretty much done, so... Every switch is set up, every uh, LED strip, uh, some sensors as well. All of that good stuff is working. And my office is pretty much built, just missing some acoustics uh, treatment. Uh, But yeah, that's pretty much it. Nice. And how are you feeling about HomeKit now that you've been deploying it at a pretty large scale? I I would guess that, you know... There will probably be some people in the world who have larger HomeKit setups than you do, but, you know, you have a pretty sizable setup at this point. Like, you have quite a lot of lights, like we've discussed, and other devices on it. Like, do you feel like you're starting to hit the limits of it, or do you feel like it scales nicely as you add more devices to it? I don't feel like uh, I am hitting any limits right now. Uh, I have seen setups that are way more advanced than, than mine, uh, I think I'm probably in the mid-range of HomeKit setups. Uh, but yeah, the thing is that you you really have to know the accessories that you're using. And also, depending on the types of, of accessories that you're using, you're going to need to have home hubs spread around. And of course, depending on the size of, of your home, because like it's quite large here and, and there are two levels so i noticed that before i had all of the home hubs integrated into my home setup like all of the the home pods and apple tvs and things like that it was a bit more flaky and -hmm. now that everything is in place it's like rock solid and when you say home hubs do you mean literal like apple tvs or home pods spread out across your house to kind of act as amplifiers for home kit or receivers for home kit or do you mean like special devices that you use to act as those kind of bridges? I mean both, uh, but in my case, it was more important for for the home hubs to be in place, like the home pods and, and Apple TV and things like that. And actually, I never thought I, I'd want something like that, but I kind of wish Apple offered like a home hub and that's it. Like just plug this into the wall. It's like looks like a little iPhone charger or something uh, because I I have like a bunch of, of HomePod minis, but I'm thinking like there are people who don't necessarily want a speaker in their bathroom or something. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you have to to do that depending on the type of accessory that you use. Uh, and, and that's from the fact that HomeKit can be 
done through a variety of protocols and and uh, transport types. You have like the Philips Hue type thing where the accessories themselves they are not like HomeKit accessories. They're Philips Hue accessories. The HomeKit thing is the Philips Bridge, and that's what the accessories talk to, and they use like a a proprietary or like Zigbee, I think, um, networking protocol. And the bridge is what makes the accessories available to HomeKit through Wi-Fi. And in my experience, that's like the most solid uh, approach. Uh, like most accessories that use that approach are are more reliable because they're right to connected right to the bridge and the bridge is on your Wi-Fi network. So in general, I feel like that's a more solid approach. And then you have these uh, usually smaller accessories that communicate to HomeKit through Bluetooth Low Energy. And those will need to reach a home hub in your place right. at some point. Because you can't do HomeKit direct like through BLE. It has to go through a home hub. And and that's where you you'll need a home hub in Bluetooth Low Energy proximity to uh, all of your BLE HomeKit stuff, and that usually only becomes a problem once your place is of a certain size. Like if it's a like a small apartment, it should be fine. Uh, but yeah, you should keep that in mind. And now we also have uh, the new Thread accessories. I think Eve just came out with a smart outlet that uses thread radios and that's um, a completely different thing and I believe it's better than Bluetooth Low Energy. I think I might have mentioned this before but wouldn't it be perfect for Apple to reintroduce some version of this airport express that they used to have which was at the at that time like a, a Wi-Fi base station which also offered you a way to connect like a headphone jack to it or it had a headphone jack that you could connect an audio cable to and then you could stream your music through that like with all of this home kit stuff and everything going on like having these home hubs but be instead small little uh, wi-fi stations like like routers wouldn't that be perfect like to have a device like that from apple oh yeah absolutely i, I really miss uh, apple being in the router market and they have so many different categories of devices and they're in so many markets right now. And I feel like that's a big thing that's missing from Apple's lineup. Like, stop doing, I don't know, the car projects or something <laughs> and, and do like a little... Not that they would have to stop the car thing to do routers. Like, I, I'm pretty sure Apple has more than enough resources, both uh, in terms of money and in terms of people to make uh, a lineup of, of routers because there's so much stuff now that requires a router and a, an Apple router could have, like you mentioned, home hub functionality. It could have something like the headphone jack. Wouldn't it be ironic like for Apple to have a, <laughs> a headphone jack in a router? <laughs> but yeah, I, I really feel like they should offer something in that space because it, it's so important, both in terms of reliability these days of your entire life basically and also in terms of privacy and things like that like i'm, I'm super happy with my uh, Eero setup that i have here with three 
euros, but I think Apple could really do something special in, in this area, but they are not, and, and that's sad. Yeah, you would you would also imagine that if they would also control the Wi-Fi access point that all the devices talk to, they could implement some pretty cool features using that. Like, you know, we, we're already seeing some stuff happening with the HomePod and things like that. Like, you can hand off using the U1 chip and things like that. Like, these are the types of features that I'm thinking about. That, you know, when you control not just the ecosystem in terms of devices and the services they talk to, but also, like, the connection point in terms of the internet itself, like, that feels just like there are so many features that could happen there. Just simple things even, like... You know, if you have like 15 different devices on your network and they all need to download the latest version of iOS, download it once to the router and then distribute it locally, kind of like a local CDN, right? Yeah. And, you know, there, there are all sorts of, of things you could implement, I feel like, if, if, if there was a device like that, including like HomeKit support and, and other things as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm also really still hoping for them to do something like this. I, I also like my router setup that I have here. I don't have anything fancy, but... You know, it's it's working fine. But, uh, you know, if I could replace that with a really nice Apple router that would work really well with everything that I have and also maybe offer some of that extra functionality, I would be totally in for that. As long as it doesn't cost like, you know, 50 times what I paid for my router. <laughs> it doesn't have to have an XDR screen, Apple. You can, you can spare that expense. <laughs> So, uh, John, what have you been up to? I've seen some really interesting stuff on your Twitter, and you've sent me some very enticing screenshots of code. So I want to know all about that. So you, what you're saying is that you want to enter once again back into John's static site generation corner? Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have been making a ton of progress uh, this last couple of weeks on the new API that I've been working on for Plot, which just to recap a little bit, Plot is my HTML generation library that is part of the publish suite that I have for static site generation. So the Plot part of this is you can write Swift code that then gets transformed and generated into HTML. And the selling point of that is that you can gain a lot more type safety than if you were to just write your HTML by hand or using some kind of string-based uh, untyped templating language, like a lot of different generators use. And that you can also leverage the full power of Swift. Like you can write actual Swift code to generate your HTML. Like you can use your own data structures, your own functions, and whatever you want. And that is just really, really powerful. And uh, a big part of why I kind of started building this whole suite of technologies is to be able to leverage Swift this way. Uh, and up until this point, like Plot has had a API that basically works with, there's this node type, which then has a bunch of static methods uh, on it that generate different elements. So you can say .div or .a for an a tag or .p or, you know, any other kind of HTML element you want to build, you're always building it by just saying dot the name of the element, and then you open up a parenthesis, and then you have this comma-separated list inside of there where you can then put additional nodes and create like a hierarchy. And I still think that this API is a really good match for HTML in general, because it's kind of like you're still writing the same sort of structure as you would if you would just write plain HTML. You're just using a slightly different syntax. Basically, instead of using uh, these uh, tags, you are instead using uh, parentheses, right? Yeah. So it, it matches really well with the way HTML actually works. But 
I have been playing around, and I've mentioned this on the on previous episodes as well, with a new Result Builders-powered version of this API. So that would give you a more Swift UI-like API when you build uh, your websites. So you can create things like components where you are building specific types that can then uh, be rendered into HTML. And the benefit of that is you can more kind of encapsulate your different components in these separate types, which creates really nice separation of concerns and makes it easier to kind of structure your code base. And it also gives you even more kind of power when it comes to using Swift features, because when using that previous uh, plot API, you, you kind of had to fit all of your logic into that syntax that it offered. So if you wanted to do something like an if statement, you couldn't just write an if statement there. You had to put like dot if, and then I had my own if statement that I wrote basically. <laughs> and there was like a <laughs> dot for each for loops and so on. But in this new API, you can just use a normal if statement. You can use normal for loops. What a revolution, right? <laughs> you can use normal Ooh. if statements. Uh, but it actually is really nice. So I am not removing the previous API. Instead, I am extending it with this new one. And I've been making a lot of progress and kind of breakthroughs recently. I was kind of stuck for a while on it. I didn't really have time to work on it. And I, I felt like also it was kind of this big project that even if I had an hour here or there to work on it, I wasn't really making enough progress. But now I really kind of um, was able to make, to make some kind of breakthrough there and really uh, gain a lot of velocity in, in implementing it to the point where... I've now started implementing it into my own website, and I'm actually already generating part of my website with this new API. And so I'm battle testing it myself in production and making sure everything works well with no regressions. And then eventually I will open source this and make it part of the next version of Plot. Awesome. So does this mean that if I go to swiftbysandel.com right now, I am going to see stuff that's been generated that way? Yes, exactly. Awesome. And you're not going to be able to tell the difference because, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the whole point. And in fact, when I was then integrating this and I was kind of starting to, you know, feel like the API was what I wanted it to be, I had written a bunch of unit tests against it to make sure everything was working well. And I wanted to, like, integrate it to kind of battle test it with my own website because that's something that I always want to do with things that I open source. I always want to be a heavy user of them myself because that way I can always find a lot of the kind of edge cases and issues before I share it with people. And that it just feels like I can then deliver a much higher level of quality than if I would just like write something and then open source it and then, you know, other people would have to test it for me, right? <laughs> so I am a huge heavy user of, of all of these tools that I've built and plot in particular and publish because that's what my whole website is built using. And what was really cool was that when I started integrating this and now into, the, into my own site, I could basically use Git as a regression testing tool <laughs> where I would rewrite part of the website using the new API and then regenerate the website and if nothing changed in my output folder in the Git diff, then zero regressions, right? Mm. Because the new API, if I write functionally the same code, the new API should ger generate this exact same HTML as the previous one. And that's been the case so far. And, you know, I've been tweaking things as I've been going on and, you know, finding things that I felt wasn't really great in terms of API design and tweaking that and fixing a couple of bugs here and there. And now things are starting to feel really rock solid. Nice. Yeah, I like this approach of being the 
biggest user of your own thing. Uh, I think that's like the, the ultimate expression of dog fooding. Uh, and it really results in, in a better and more solid solution in the end because any edge case or like things that happen only at a certain scale, uh, you are going to hit those before any other user of your library, probably. Exactly. And, and I'm still fairly confident that SwiftPysondel is the largest website that has been built using Publish and will probably remain that for a long time, right? Because, you know, it, it has a lot of pages, like, and, you know, I built it, so I've been working with it for, for a long time now, you know, during its development. So, you know, eventually maybe there will be another website that has more pages than me or something. And I'm looking forward to that day. But to this day, you know, it feels like I'm still the, the kind of most kind of large scale user of these tools, which is a good thing. Like you say, like it's it's great for dog fooding and it's great for finding any issues before I ship it to to other people. Um, but what's really cool about this, one thing I'm really proud of actually is I mentioned that I've, I've been now able to migrate to this API now with kind of zero regressions uh, at the end. I mean, I hope so, but you know, <laughs> since the HTML hasn't changed, well, the chance for regressions is pretty small. <laughs> but um, what I also have managed to do is to make all of these changes and write this brand new API, which also required me to write a brand new rendering engine for Plot, which basically is able to understand these new components and you know all of the things that they offer in the new API changes. But I was able to do all of this without changing the existing public API at all. Like the existing public API remains exactly the same. And even so that all of the unit tests that I had in place, and Plot actually has a 100% unit testing coverage, so it tests all of the APIs in the whole library. Uh, also, I didn't have to make any changes to those either, which is also a great thing, right? So it shows that this is a purely additive change. Like, if you're using the existing Plot API, you should have also zero regressions when I roll this new version out, because... Uh, it's the API hasn't changed. The unit tests are all the same. So unless I've missed something in my unit testing, uh, which I hope I haven't, <laughs> but mm -hmm. then there should also be zero regressions for all of the users using it, which is definitely my goal. So I just feel very happy about the way this has all come through where I didn't need to kind of change the public API or, or kind of force users to, to change their code in any way. Uh, I was able to add this really sophisticated new component API right on top of it with without any kind of uh, compromises in terms of the existing API. So if people want to use this new API, they can. If they still want to use the old one, they can do that as well. They can even mix and match between the two as much as they want. So I am really happy with how this is all coming together. And I really can't wait to ship it to people and to hear what people think about it. Yeah, that it looks really good. And I'm definitely looking forward to trying it out myself. Uh, I haven't done many advanced things with Plot, but this new API makes me really interested in, in trying it out. Yeah, and the cool thing is that, you know, if you just have a part of your website that you feel could benefit from this new API, because again, it's not meant to replace the existing one, because I still feel like if you're just creating an HTML hierarchy, the old API is great for that. Like, it's a great match for that. But if you are wanting to create more kind of sophisticated, more dynamic components, not dynamic in terms of their like behavior because it's static site generation at the end of the day, <laughs> so they're going to be static. But in terms of like how you want to configure them and maybe have a different permutations based on you know what you're rendering. Like in my case, 
if I'm rendering like a podcast or an article or a video or whatever it is I'm rendering on my website, I am adopting each page very differently. And for this, these kind of components has been so nice. Like I'm able to really simplify my code and to make it much more clean by having these separate components. And the good news is that if you, Rambo, if you, for example, wanted to like introduce some new feature onto your blog or your website and you just want to try this new API for that, you could just write that single part using this new API and then completely integrate it into the existing one without any effort, which I another thing that I'm really happy about. So does that mean that you have like a plot component representable or something? <laughs> <laughs> even better, actually, where you don't even have to write any of those wrappers that you have to write when you're working with SwiftUI. So if you are bridging a UI kit component into SwiftUI, you have to write those UI view representable, which I think is what you're hinting at, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in my case, uh, that's not even needed because you can just, on your component, just call a method that is called convert to node, and then you get a node back. So mm. that's it. Like, you don't need to write any of those code yourself like i take care of all that for you oh man if we could do just like ui view something dot convert to swift ui that would be magical <laughs> <laughs> that'd be fantastic right <laughs> yeah so uh, one final note on this uh, kind of adventure and i'm really hoping that you know in the next couple of weeks i will be able to completely finish this and and publish this so that anyone can use it uh, i'm not making any promises because i you know I could get a lot of client work tomorrow and then I don't have time for a while, but hopefully I will be able to. Uh, but one kind of final note on this is a reason also that I feel confident now that I will be able to, to get this out of the door pretty quickly is that I decided to completely remove all of the things I've been working on for this related to CSS. So mm. uh, if you've been listening to previous conversations about this that, that we've had a few months ago, you might remember that I talked about also like including a CSS generator into this new component API where you could say like dot padding on a component similar to what you can do with a Swift UI view and it would generate corresponding CSS for you. Now, that I still want to do, uh, definitely, and I still have made great progress on that too, but for this initial release of the components, I decided to completely decouple that because I felt like that was so unnecessary for me to like have all of that complexity coupled with this new implementation, because let me tell you, like this implementation, like rewriting all this stuff and, and creating this component API, it's enough of work for one release. <laughs> like I don't have to add basically a CSS compiler into it as well. So I still want to do the CSS part, but I've decided for now to decouple it, which was a, I was very happy when I made that decision. Yeah, nice. I'm really looking forward to trying this out and, and congrats on finally being able to get close to shipping this. But I'm sure you will soon, and I want to be the first one to try it out, other than you, of oh, course. Awesome. Yeah, I will uh, let you know when it is available, and you can try it out real quickly and be the first one. Nice. <laughs> You'll be like the equivalent of doing the first comment on YouTube, right? <laughs> first. <laughs> awesome. So with those updates from us uh, done, let's now move on to our other segments. We want to start with just a very, very quick in the news part here. Uh, to just say that we are watching the Epic versus Apple trial as we're recording. It uh, just started yesterday. Uh, by watching, I don't mean actually watching some live stream or listening to... Are you doing that, Rambo? Are you listening to the audio? I would if, if it was easier, but you have to like dial in to like a US phone number. Like 
in the old days. Oh, I found just a live stream online where oh. you could just listen to it. Yeah, I should tell that to the 9to5 folks. Uh, they were pretty mad at the phone thing yesterday. And it was like pretty bad quality, apparently, where you could barely understand what people were saying. So, yeah, send me the link. Sure, will do. Uh, <laughs> so... I listened for like 30 seconds and I was like, I'm not going to listen to a trial, <laughs> you know, like that. I'm not interested <laughs> in this. So it, it is really interesting to follow the story, of course, because it's a pretty huge, it feels at least like a pretty huge deal. Like um, it could potentially make some history if, you know, it goes one way or the other. If Apple will, for some reason, be forced to make some changes regarding the App Store, that, you know, could, of course, have a huge impact on us as developers. So even though I am not, super interested in the actual battle between Epic and Apple themselves. I am interested in what will the outcome be and how could it affect like the, the wider development community. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and it's also interesting to see things that surface uh, because when some something like this happens, lots of documents and old email conversations show up that we didn't know of. And there are some really interesting ones, and I was looking at, uh, I think it was like a, a PowerPoint from Epic, uh, and there are interviews they've done with Apple exec- executives and former executives there, and it's really funny to, to see like uh, the behind the scenes of, of some things, like the, there's this email where Phil Schiller is talking about how we, he wanted the App Store to be like a fixed page in, in Springboard or something. Uh, and, and then you see like, this is how some of the stuff we see on, on iOS gets to be like someone says something in an email. And uh, fortunately, in this case, it didn't happen, but it could have. Yeah, it feels like there's a lot of kind of alternate universe things there, right? Yeah. Like, you know, in an alternative universe, this could have happened or that could have happened. And it's also interesting to learn more about, I mean, this is a very select pieces of documents, right? Like that are meant to prove a point in court. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but this is this is what I think they're for, right? <laughs> um, so they're not like a complete historical account of all these conversations. They're very selected based on what kind of arguments they want to make. But it's still interesting to to get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain. Uh, but I must say also when I'm reading these, these things, it feels kind of strange to read them. Like these are correspondence between two people like or three or a group of people that that is like made under the assumption that this is them talking in private. And now yeah. all of a sudden it's like all there for the world to see. Like, I don't really know how I feel about that. Like, that 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 anyone is able to read it like that you know i am usually a pretty nice person and i try not to be offending anybody even in private emails but at the same time like i wouldn't want someone to just be able to read my emails one day right well that's called a subpoena i think uh and yeah when you are involved in in something like this you're basically required to hand over that stuff and it can also happen to service providers, and that's why many people prefer to use end-to-end encrypted, encrypted things, uh, because then even if the service is required to hand over your data, they can't because they don't have your data. I mean, they have it, but it's all scrambled. Um, so, yeah, that that's uh, one reason to be careful about what you use out there and not because you're committing crimes but uh if something happens and you're like accused of of committing something and 
they get all of your communications, uh, there might be stuff there that you don't want to get out, even if it's not anything illegal. Right, because when you're reading these emails again, it like it it definitely doesn't read like you know public announcements, right? Yeah, like these are just conversations between the team, and it is interesting. You know, I am I am interested in in, in finding out some of these things because it gives us that peek behind the curtain that we almost never get from Apple themselves. Like it's interesting from a kind of historical point of view to look at like what are some of the decisions that made that went into designing the app store and the iphone and so on like these things that are coming out of this so it's interesting to read all of these things but at the same time i'm also feeling it's a little bit awkward to read someone else's emails (laughs) yeah all right so we're going to follow this trial again we're not lawyers so you know uh we this is a little bit like out of our comfort zone to be honest but we will follow the outcomes of it and we're not going to report on it like super thoroughly on every episode now because this will go on for like three weeks or something but we will definitely talk about it like what the outcomes will be and if there will be anything big coming out of it so uh, for your uh lawyer uh following very thorough analysis of this case you will probably need to find another podcast (laughs) but uh, we will definitely talk about it from our kind of developer's point of view yeah, and uh, 9 to 5 Mac is also covering like the major developments or the more interesting developments in this case. So uh, keep your eyes on 9to5mac.com, get the app, uh, enable notifications, or use the RSS feed. Cool. Awesome. Good Good tips there. Uh, but now let's actually dive into our very much our comfort zone, which is answering some really great questions from our audience with Ask Stack Trace. But before we do, let's take a very quick break to thank this episode's sponsor. This week's episode of Stack Trace is brought to you by Kanji. Kanji is an Apple device management or MDM solution that's built exclusively for teams and organizations that use Apple devices. It's a modern cloud-based platform that lets you manage and secure your company's Macs, iPhones, iPads, and Apple TVs all centrally, which can save all sorts of IT teams countless of hours of having to repeatedly configure multiple devices manually. What sets Kanji apart from other services like it is that it has a strong focus on automation. It includes features like one-click compliance templates and over 150 pre-built automations, apps, and workflows. Combine that with Kanji's modern and intuitive user interface, which focuses on reducing the amount of time that it takes for IT teams to ensure that their Apple fleet is secure and efficient, and you've got a system that's beloved by IT teams, both big and small, all around the world. Kanji, of course, also supports features like automated patching and app installs, both from the App Store and custom enterprise apps, managed macOS upgrades, pre-built security controls, a dedicated web API, and much more. And as an end user working at a company that uses Kanji, you will even get an app that gives you easy access to a select library of applications and tools so that you can download what you need without having to always ask your IT department about it. So if your company is looking for a simpler way to manage your Apple devices, then check out Kanji today by using the link that's in the show notes. Using that link also directly helps support Stacktrace as well. So if you're interested in Kanji, please check them out using that special referral link that's in the show notes. Thanks a lot to Kanji for sponsoring this week's episode of Stacktrace. 
Alright Rambo, so now it's time for our Ask Stacktrace segment and we wanted to do a little bit longer segment this time because like we've mentioned on a previous episode as well, we got quite a lot of really nice questions from you, our wonderful listeners, and we definitely want to take the time to answer as many of those as we possibly can. So let's get going. And the first question for this week comes from Adam. And Adam says that he recently wanted to write a project, but he spent too much time on designing the architecture. So he's wondering about how we prepare before starting a new project. Do we spend a lot of time on designing the architecture before we start coding? Do we draw something like an UML? Or do we just code and then refactor as needed? So Rambo, I thought this was a really interesting question and and definitely something that I think we both have a lot of opinions on. So how do you typically start out a new project? Do you design the architecture up front or do you more kind of take it as it comes and goes? Overthinking is the enemy of shipping. Well said. <laughs> I, I see this a lot, a lot, a lot. And not just with like people who are just getting started, but also with uh, more senior people, including myself. Like I will fall into this trap sometimes. It happens. Uh, and my advice would be to really try to refactor as you go. And, and don't... Like if you're just starting a project and... Of course, again, it depends. Like, but most of the time, we're talking about like a personal project, and it might become a product in the future, but you don't know. So, just start doing things. Uh, and I think I mentioned this before, but the way I like to do things when I have an idea for a project is to start with the core functionality, like what it is that I want this app to do, and get that done, and then build off the all of the stuff around that later. Um, and if I notice that it's growing and I need to reorganize things, then I might draw up some schematics of like how I want things to be structured. But if you spend too much time thinking about the architecture or how the classes are going to be structured or doing UML or, or something like that, you're never going to get anything done in reality uh and again this is for like personal projects uh there are some types of projects where you need to do a lot of planning up front but in my experience most projects are not that type of project yeah i guess the the key deciding factor here uh, around how much planning is appropriate to do is are you going to work with other people or not on this right true Like, if this is a hobby project where you're working on your own, then you can kind of keep the whole architecture in your in your head if you want to, or you can just, like, you know, take it as it comes. Like, if you feel the need to refactor, you can refactor, or, you know, if you feel the need to design something a little bit more specifically, you can do that, or you can just see kind of where the project takes you. Uh, because another interesting point here, or important point, is... If you spend a lot of time designing something up front, there's also a big chance that what you then will end up building might not be able to conform to that initial design. Yep. You might discover things or realize things or wanting to change things as you write this project. And then this beautiful UML and this be beautiful class diagrams and architectural diagrams that you've been working on for weeks all of a sudden they're all outdated right and mm -hmm. that's that would be a shame also and then you kind of can also end up in a trap where you spend all this time on the planning so you really want this planning to work out so you end up like writing your project in a way that is not ideal just to conform to this architecture that you designed initially right <laughs> and which is definitely a, a bit of an anti-pattern so yeah. I say all of this, but also, like I mentioned, if you're working with other people, 
I think doing a little bit of planning up front is, is really important because even if you might have a, an understanding about the project, if there are five people working on it, there's a risk that there are five different understandings of what this project should be, mm-hmm. right? And even if you agree on like an architectural pattern or something like that to follow, the interpretation of this pattern might be different between different people. So sitting down and actually planning things and dividing who will work with on what and how we should dis- how these things should interact and how these components should work that I think can be really, really beneficial. I don't think you need to ever go down to like the the kind of class level when you're doing these kind of planning. It's it's more something for kind of the higher level. And what I am mostly concerned about when I design these sorts of things up front is how will things like data flow work? Like how will the data flow throughout the application? What are the high level features involved? Like those are questions that I'm more interested in answering than what will I name this class and what will the delegate protocol look like and and things like that like those are details that i can figure out as i write the implementation but the overall kind of high level picture the map like the the kind of bird's eye map of the project that can be really useful to have especially if you're working with other people yeah and also this does not mean that even when working by yourself especially if you're working on something that you plan on actually shipping and especially even more if you plan on making it a product Uh, All of this that we said doesn't mean that you shouldn't document stuff, even if it's just for yourself. Uh, Or maybe like you might hire someone in the future or have a friend help you with the project. Or uh, if it's open source, having documentation also helps. So uh, when I am working on, say, AirBuddy, which is the app I work on the most, I usually document things that are like... When when it's like a spec, uh, so like when I was the developing the way the app groups and sorts devices on the list, I have a full spec for that that describes how it works, and I wrote that before I actually wrote the code that does it because it's such a complicated thing and and it has so many details that having a written spec before writing the code guided me through writing the code. And of course, if I change the code in a way that changes the conformance to the spec, but it's actually intentional, I'll go and rewrite the spec to match, or at least like change that piece that changed. Uh, so don't feel like you should not document anything, even if it's just for yourself, I just think that that most of the time you shouldn't start out with lots of diagrams and and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's it's very important that point you make there, which is that the spec or the the architecture or whatever it is that you have as your document, as your kind of map, your your guiding principles, they don't need to be set in stone, especially not in the beginning of the project. Like yeah. I, I would argue they shouldn't be. So, you know, as you are doing the, the actual implementation and starting to discover things and maybe you start to change your mind or you are thinking about a new way to solve things, I don't think there's anything wrong with going back and updating the plan because that's the point in, in the early days of a project where you can update the plan without having huge kind of ripple effects where if you change your mind two years down the line, that's going to probably be a harder refactor to do. But if it's just in the beginning, like even if you already made your plan, you can change the plan. So going back and forth a little bit and trying some implementation, going back and updating the plan, that can also be a great workflow, I think. Yeah, the plan is yours. You can change the plan. (laughs) Exactly. And I definitely like agree with, with your earlier point there, which was, 
you know, uh, this this kind of planning and and spending too much time, like Adam also says in his question, uh, on an architecture upfront can really really reduce your productivity. So you don't want to move fast and break things and ship broken things. Uh, you want to still like like move fast and and get your product out of the door or whatever it is you're building, but you also want to spend a little bit of time maybe on planning. You know, having a good balance there is key. So spending too much time on planning will probably slow you down too much. And additionally, uh, we talked about technical planning mostly, but if you are starting out on a project that you plan on making a product or like selling an app, either through the App Store or whatever, then it's important that you do other types of planning, uh, like uh, how much can you sell it for, what are the competitors? How will you market it? That sort of planning is something that you should absolutely do and you should absolutely start doing it as soon as possible and, and not leave it until the app is done. So um, all in on marketing planning. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think here is where this term elevator pitch also comes in, yeah. right? Like you want to be able to describe your project in a very simple way that lets you also market it then in the future. Like I always think about what do I want the tagline to be? Like if I would make a website for this product and you know, in most modern websites for software and things like you have the app icon, you have the name of the app and then under there's like a one or two sentences that has like a punchline for what the app does. Like what will that punchline be for my project? Like that's something I think about really early because that can also help like guide my, uh, work as well. If I if I know what I want the unique selling point of the product to be, I can also decide. You know, do I want to focus on this feature or that feature, depending on you know how am I actually going to market this? Yeah, great. So that was a really nice question uh, from Adam, and now let's move on to our next question, which comes from Felipe. And Felipe says that when he writes blog posts, it takes him a long time to prepare something decent. Does that get any easier for you with time? So, uh, Rambo, why don't you get started here? You have written a fair amount of articles, both for 9to5Mac, I mean, quite a lot of them, actually, and also for your own website. So do you feel like the writing process for you has gotten easier and easier over time, or do you still feel like it takes you a while to get started writing? The writing process itself definitely gets easier over time, uh, but especially when I'm writing something for uh, like Ramble.Codes, my, my personal blog, it, it, it is hard because it usually involves something more technical and I want to have screenshots and code samples and things like that. And I'm sure you run into that all of the time as well. Um, so... What what I can say, like in my personal experience, it does get easier in terms of the actual process of, of writing something. But in order to put out quality content, uh, be that whatever, like podcasts, videos, blog posts, it's always going to take quite a, a while. Uh, and of course, after you get going, it's easier. And, and with experience, things get a bit easier. But there's only so much faster you can do th something with experience and still keep the quality up. So I'd say don't be discouraged by how hard it feels to, to get something out um, because it, it's normal. Like if you want to put out quality content, you're going to, to run into that sort of thing. But at the same time, you should modulate 
the quality of what you're putting out to your availability. Like I can use as an example this podcast that you're listening to right now. There are podcasts where when editing the podcast, people will like select the best parts and cut out everything else and cut out absolutely every single little mistake that was made during the podcast. Like if I just go uh, for a second, like they, they would cut that out uh, and all sorts of things. And we don't do that on Stack Trace. Why? Because I edit Stack Trace and I don't have seven, eight hours to, to edit a one hour episode. Um, so you should also keep that in mind. Uh, if you if you want to go too much towards perfection, the same thing we mentioned with the first question might happen where you're overthinking what you want to put out and then you end up putting out nothing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really good advice. And I will say that, you know, I've been writing articles now, you know, very, very consistently for almost four years. In fact, when this episode comes out, that will be the four-year birthday of Swift by Sandell, mm. which is tomorrow as we record. So I have been doing this for like four years now. Um, and it does get easier when it comes to the actual mechanics of writing an article or, you know, coming up with good sample code and these sorts of things. Like that, I will say, like gets definitely easier and easier over time because you kind of learn what works and what doesn't or what your personal style is and you just get better at it, right? Like it's with anything. If you practice it, you will usually get better. But that being said, like, uh, it's interesting when you talk about that, you know, modulating it with time. And that I think really plays in here where when I got started writing articles, if you go back to uh, read some of my very early articles, you will see that they are extremely short, especially if you compare them to uh, my kind of current article length that I that I use. And I go a little bit back and forth on this. I, there was a time when uh, before I kind of ended my 200 weeks run of weekly articles, I felt like I was writing two long articles as well because they had just been growing and growing in scope. In fact, I did a, I plotted it out on a chart uh, the average word length of each of my articles, and it was just like the the curve was just going up and up and up and up, <laughs> <laughs> like over time. So I would also recommend here if you are just getting started with something, start out as simple as you can. Like I feel like a lot of people when they write blog posts, they have this thinking that they need to write something that's like super original and you know a, a super unique thought that no one has had before, and it needs to be revolutionary and like a really complex thing. I don't think any of those things are true. I think you could just share whatever it is you want to share. If you want to share something that you found interesting in your work and you're allowed to share it by your employer and stuff like that, then go ahead, like share it. Like share that just little piece. Like it doesn't have to be a huge article with lots of elaborate thoughts and, and advice. It can just be something you learned, right? Like a little couple of code snippets maybe or just a single one and some text. Like that can be your first blog post. And that way you can kind of learn. And Maybe this initial article, even if it's just like 100 or 200 words that you write, it might still take you like five hours to write it because you might not be you know, good at writing because you just haven't done it much. And that's fine. Like You can spend the time to, to create something really nice, but keep it narrow in scope. And then once you get better and better, you can then maybe reduce the amount of time or you can re increase the complexity and keep the same amount of time. In fact, what I was doing when I got started is that I always gave myself only three hours to complete writing a blog post. And as time went by and I got better at writing, the article length, like I mentioned, got longer and longer, but I still kept those three hours of time so I could produce more in that same time slot, but I still kept the time slot. 
And I think that can be a good technique as well if you don't want things to grow too much out of, out of control. Yeah, sounds like great advice. And, and you have quite a bit of experience in the area, so I would definitely listen to John. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And again, like, don't compare yourself against me or Rambo or anyone else who's been writing for a while. Like, again, this is something you will learn. This is a skill you can practice. So your first article will likely not be the same level as like the latest article from someone who has been writing nonstop for four years, right? Like yeah. that is not a fair comparison to make to yourself. Definitely. Great. And the final question that we have for this week's episode comes from Lars. And Lars wants to hear how we would decide on a web framework for an iOS app that could potentially also expand to having a website. So building an API for an iOS app that could then potentially also be used from a website. How would we weigh using things like Node.js or server-side Swift with Vapor or other kinds of frameworks to build a REST API for a flexible front-end? So this previous question from Felipe was kind of more in my wheelhouse, but this one, Rambo, I think is very much in your area of expertise since you've been working on a lot of different APIs for your different apps and things like that. So how do you typically decide what technologies to use? This is a very interesting question, uh, Lars, and I, I like that you asked how we would decide and not like, should I use Vapor or Node.js? Or like, what is the best web framework to use, right? We get a lot of <laughs> questions that are phrased like that. And, you know, the, if you ask us a question, what is the best X? The answer will always be, what will it be, Rambo? It depends. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, that's the right way to ask this question is, is how you decide. And there are many things you could consider here. And in, in this case, of course, I don't have the full context if, if you're doing this for yourself or if this is with a company or something. But in general, uh, with server-side technology, and I've mentioned this before, so it's not uh, breaking news here, but I usually go for what I know how to use already and also what has good adoption, good tooling, lots of libraries available and support from different types of vendors. And in my case, that happens to be Node.js. That's what I usually go to for my web work. And uh, in, in the case of having an app that might also have a website, I don't think that makes a big difference in your decision because you can have a website front end that's written in, in React or something, something like that. And it talks to your backend API, which could be whatever it could be Node.js, Vapor or something different so I always go with what I have the most experience in and also what's been battle tested that said if you are feeling adventurous and you would like to go with the latest and greatest you could totally go with server-side with Swift with Vapor if that's all you know like you you know Swift, you're a great Swift developer and you have no experience with anything else like with PHP or Node.js or Ruby or something, I would definitely go with Swift because then at least you know the language. Uh, just keep in mind that it being a newer thing, you might hit more pointy edges when, when trying to use it. So yeah, just keep that in mind. But it's a, it's a very personal decision, but there are some general things you could consider and 
the one I look the most at for server-side stuff is how old is this, basically? Like, uh, the older it is, the better, but not exactly. Uh, I, I think you know what I mean. Like, it has to be something battle-tested. And again, it depends. Like, it's if it's just something that you're doing, like a little side project for yourself, and uh, it's not like uh, with a big company or you expect it to blow up immediately, I mean... Go for a new thing, but if this is something that should last for a long time and you want something more solid, go with a, a more proven solution. Yeah, I think those are some really, really good tips. And I would say also in general, like don't put too much emphasis on the programming language itself because I, I'm not sure how big of a factor it plays in in the grand scheme of things here in this kind of uh, decision where... You know, server-side Swift is really cool and is definitely like something I'm keeping uh, track of and it's evolving really quickly and there are a lot of companies already using it in production and it's really great. But if you are like one developer, let's say, and you are tasked with, with building both the app and the API that it's going to uh, use, uh, using something like server-side Swift, which like you mentioned, is also way less kind of supported by different vendors and different platforms and hosting providers and something you might need to like install yourself and figure out how to, you know, debug it and all those sorts of things. Like I'm not saying this to, to be like a, uh, an insult to server-side Swift or something, because I am really excited by it and I'm, I'm really impressed also with all of the work that is going on in there. But depending on your context, you might want to stick to more kind of quote unquote mainstream technologies when it comes to these things, especially if the, backend or like the, the the web implementation is more kind of just your kind of data store and you just want to read and write from it. You don't want to do a lot of logic there. You might want to go with something a little bit like more mainstream that is easier for you to find out information about or read documentation about and so on and so forth, uh, which will probably give you a better development experience overall. But like you also say, like if, if you are really keen on using Swift, then go for it. Use Vapor. It's a great framework. But like you mentioned, Rambo, you might need to figure out a few things when it comes to deployment, when it comes to running the server, when it comes to these sorts of things that might not be as set in stone as they are for kind of more established technologies like Node.js or PHP or other kinds of technologies like it. Yeah, and again, to reiterate, this doesn't mean that we don't like server-side Swift or that it's not good. Quite the opposite, like I mentioned. I, I really love it. I think it's really exciting and being able to use Swift for server-side development is really, really cool. Uh, but again, yeah, you might uh, face some issues and you might need to research a bit more than you would with a technology that's been around for longer. Absolutely. And there's also the potential of using something like GraphQL or a more kind of ready-made solution like Firebase or AWS and so on, right? That might enable you to get started with some of these things without having to like write a server and deploy things and manage all of those things or using something like Cloudflare workers or other kinds of these kind of um, functional based uh, systems where you have these cloud functions that get executed and run your logic. So it depends a lot on what you're building, like always. Uh, but in general, I would say if you're looking to build like a completely custom server that runs your own code that you will manage and host yourself, I would go for something that is as battle-proven as possible without going back too 
far in history, right? Web objects. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Write something with, with technologies from like the 70s or something. Uh, you want something that feels modern, but it's also like used by a lot of people and that is like mainstream and easy, easy to get started with, I think. And who knows, maybe wait for WWDC. Maybe this is the year when we get uh, Apple CloudKit functions or something. Yeah, that would be super cool. And I also agree with you that I wouldn't think too much about whether or not this project will have other clients like a website or an Android app or, or a desktop app in the future or something because chances are that they will just talk to the same API anyway. So as long as you design the web API like the REST API really well and make it very clear, then these other clients will most likely be able to talk to it without any problems. Yep. Great. So thanks a lot for those three great questions, Adam, Felipe, and Lars. And if you want to ask us a question as well, then you can always do that by tweeting with the hashtag AskStackTrace or by emailing us at stacktrace at 9to5mac.com. Uh, but that's it for this episode. Thanks a lot to Kanji for making it possible by sponsoring our episode here and feel free to check them out using the link that's in the show notes uh, but most of all thank you a lot for listening everybody and we'll talk to you again next week so say goodbye mr rambo goodbye <laughs>